What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 149 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I brought on my good friend, John Johnson. We sat down in a park in Long Beach, and we talked about how he's designed his life to become a professional piercer owning his own studio in Long Beach called New Flower Studio. I met John when I was 16 years old, and we've been friends ever since. And John was in his early 20s when I met him, and let's just say his cash flow wasn't as good as it is today. John would take the bus to work. Some nights he would sleep at the bus stop because he would have to open early the next morning. I'd always offer to give him a ride home, but John just was always cool and happy with whatever. He never needed much. He just always kind of would do his thing. Sometimes he would walk home, and walking home for him meant walking 17 miles. He'd walk all night. And John just operated in a way that was really fascinating to me. He has very strong belief systems, yet he's non-judgmental. He is somebody who I've turned to in my mind in moments where I found myself really wanting to judge somebody for their belief system or for how they live their life and always ask myself, you know, what would John Johnson do right now? And John would always go deeper into getting to know that person, their thoughts, their feelings, and how they operate. And a lot of times he will adopt those good things and attributes that that person's belief system has to offer. He is somebody that, again, just inspires the heck out of me because, like I said, when I first met him, he was taking the bus. Now he owns a studio in Long Beach that's very, very successful, and he's opening another one. He's designed his life as an entrepreneur in an industry that he's very passionate about, the piercing world. And throughout this episode, you can really hear the steps that he took. I mean, he admits to being terrible with money. And so he started taking free business classes offered by the city of Long Beach. And you can really track his success every step of the way, which again, is just so interesting and profound for me to be witnessing the evolution of John Johnson over the years. And he also has these interesting passions in like tea, for example. As you'll learn, John is vegan straight edge and very passionate about tea culture in China. And prior to the show, we did a tea ceremony, which I don't know if you know this about me, but I only drink tea as well. I don't drink coffee. And John turned me on to the Global Tea Hut, which uh, you can check out in the show notes. John follows a Zen teacher in Taiwan who is passionate about tea and teaches people about tea as well. And throughout the episode, you'll hear a lot about that where John describes what tea and Zen means, means to him and the practice that he works on every single day. Again, I was just so honored to have John on the show and, and have him share with you all how he's designed his life because I think it's a great example that you know anybody can design the life that they want with time and perseverance and seeking knowledge and trying to better yourself through pursuits of educating yourself in small business ownership or even you know educating yourself in other cultures and their spiritual practices. John is always learning. John is always pushing himself, trying to be a better person. And somebody, like I said, I just, I always think about and look to in times where, you know, I find myself maybe being a little bit too judgmental, even on myself or the people I'm surrounded by. So if you're in the Southern California area and you're into piercing, whether it's your ears, your navel, your nose, whatever it may be, please go check out John at New Flower Studio in Long Beach. You can click in the show notes to check that out. And if you're a tea lover like I am, please check out globalteahut.org and you'll get to see what this tea culture and the world of tea is really all about because it's really fascinating. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone and hit the subscribe button. So with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with John Johnson from New Flower Studio. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, 
entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am joined by John Johnson, an old friend, the owner and operator of New Flower Studio here in Long Beach, and somebody that I really learned a lot from when I was 16 years old through the, the work that we did at Surf City Squeeze Juice Bar. But bringing him on the show today is, is a really big moment for me because he is somebody I, I tend to think about in moments of question, when I'm questioning kind of the person I'm with or I'm questioning some sort of thing that someone's preaching me about, I think, what would John Johnson do right now? And you've always been somebody who's just kind of open to listening to someone's opinion about life and their personal sort of ideas about life. And you kind of just taught me that acceptance is so important when you're, when you're amongst people of different cultures and different races. And I really love you for that, brother. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Chapin. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, glad to be here. It's an honor. I'm a big fan of your show. Uh, that's a pretty big introduction, so I'll do my best to live up to that. Well, dude, I mean, your background itself is is also why I brought you here, because you're somebody who has a very strong belief system about uh, various aspects of religion, the world, and you're, you've stuck with it for so long, you know, and, and you've really designed your life around these beliefs and, and have no sort of intention of ever changing them. <laughs> um, and on top of that, like respect everyone else's beliefs too, you know, and, and you practice many different religions, even though I think you have a foundation of what Rastafarianism, is yeah. that correct? Yes, I. And, uh, it's just, again, it's always been something that I really take in every culture that I travel to. And I think to myself, like, what would John Johnson do right now? You know, and I sit wow. sitting in a cave and to be honest, like I love Hindu religions in so many ways, but sometimes I'm just so bored. And I'm like, what would John Johnson do right now? And he would just dive deeper into understanding where they're coming from. And, and, and then in the end, like you do practice a lot of people's philosophies on those very, uh, religious holidays, if you will. Like you used to fast for Ramadan. I don't know. Do you still do that? Uh, every couple of years or so. Okay. Sure. And yeah, it's just something that I've always just really thought, thought was so beautiful about you and wanted to kind of share that with the world as well as my friend your success in life because when we met you were poor as fuck <laughs> and you've now become a very successful business owner which i think again going back to lifestyle design is remarkable dude like where you came from where you're at now is just for me such an inspiration and so i'd like to just the audience to first get a feel for you where you come from because i know you're from indiana originally um can you talk a little bit about your childhood and what that was like uh sure um i guess uh the biggest thing I could say about my childhood to go back that far is that I would be the great example of a latchkey kid. You know, I came, uh, came up during what is probably the first generation of Americans, at least, uh, products of divorce, um, or living with divorce, you know, um, once upon a time, at least we're supposed to believe that marriage was forever and people stayed together and then, you know, come into the 80s, for example, and divorce became commonplace in the U.S. And so uh, my parents divorced, and I think that's pretty normalized background and behaviors now. 
but at the time I would have been uh, very much a latchkey kid, you know. Uh, once uh, my father was uh, moved out of the house and mom was working full time, I was part of that generation of young people that came home every day to an empty house and had to entertain themselves with VHS uh, movies and, uh, you know, stuff similar to that. Sega Genesis. Oh, there you go. That too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I uh, uh, came from a uh, household led by a single mother and eventually would move to Florida after high school. My way of escaping the Midwest, escaping uh, home was to go to college, and I chose a art school in Florida to attend and lived in Florida for a few years, and then hit the early, very early 90s, no, mid-90s, and I would make my way to California and more or less never really look back. When you say make your way, like you hitchhiking back in those days? No, 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 buses? no, of course not, but uh, I wouldn't have been sophisticated enough to, to survive something quite like that. No, but I had opportunities to move to California, and with the limited resources that I had, I just packed up and bought a flight and landed in at LAX with uh, like 30 or $40 to my name and not much else, and again, never looked back. I've been here uh, more or less ever since. I think it's important for the audience to kind of understand um, some pivotal moments in your life where you found certain philosophies that you really fell in love with or have stayed committed to, which is you know the straight edge movement, uh, which is something that you still are very strongly involved in, um, hardcore music, uh, veganism, Rastafarianism. Can you maybe take the audience through those moments and when you discovered them? Because I, I know like you are somebody who has found you know straight edge and somebody who has been involved in it from an early inception that you know i don't know how much you affected the movement itself but like you have been committed to can you talk sure. to the audience a little bit about that yeah absolutely um part of what makes the character that i play in real life um is heavily influenced by music in particular the the punk rock community, and within the under the umbrella of punk rock, the straight edge movement, and and by extension veganism. Um, you know, I was ten years old when I was learning about punk rock bands like uh, The Clash, and 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 not long after that, you know, other bands, Misfits, and up the up the chain uh, through underground metal and and punk music, and. By the time I was 14 years old, I think really my core values that that I took, those were the takeaways from punk rock music. Uh, as my core values developed, they really just solidified and I never outgrew them. I'm certainly a always evolving person, for sure. I, am, uh, I try to be the best that I can be teachable and look for lessons where I can find them, but by the time I was 14 years old, I was very much committed to a uh, alcohol and drug-free lifestyle. And by 14 or at 14, I went vegan. And now at 46, as of now, uh, I am still vegan, very much so. I am still very much uh, alcohol and drug-free. Those are very, very key elements to uh, who I am and how I see the world. I mean, it's really shaped um, my my value system and my worldview all at the same time. What do you think about that sort of ideal was so compelling for you to join? Um, maybe a natural attraction to counterculture. 
you know, uh, punk rock, Rastafarianism, uh, anarchist philosophy, uh, even these things all kind of share common threads of going against the grain. And uh, I am nothing if uh, not against the grain. Right on. I think, you know, with the Rastafarian aspect that the audience is listening to, they have a, a preconceived or a, a maybe it's not preconceived, they have an understanding of it that involves a lot of like marijuana smoking, for example. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, how does that tie into your lifestyle and your belief system? Um, you know what? I am in no way against uh, medical marijuana. I'm not against the sacrament of using ganja in ceremony or, or casually otherwise. Uh, I've never uh, I've never smoked pot, never been high. Um, I've also never drank uh, alcohol or anything quite like that. But um, marijuana is an inherent part of Jamaican culture in general. And while it's closely related with Rastafarianism, and it should be because there is a, a deep connection there, the reality is that everyone in Jamaica smokes ganja. It's not exclusive to Rastas. And to the Rasta culture, as it's called, it is very, very much a sacrament. However, I've been to Jamaica, and I've been to, uh, throughout the Rasta community there, it's been many years, but I can tell you that as a white guy from the United States, at the time having very long uh, dreadlocks, I was very well, um, ex uh, I was accepted, I was completely accepted by the Rasta community, even after saying no, uh, I wasn't going to smoke ganja. It was offered to me constantly, left and right, everywhere I went. Every time I would be with Rastas in the uh, in the mountains, uh, outside in the grill and in the community, um, it was just assumed I would be smoking ganja. I'd say no, and everyone was completely okay with that from the Rasta perspective. Mm -hmm. What they cared about the most was that uh, I accepted Haile Selassie as the father of all nations, uh, and that uh, I didn't eat meat, and that I didn't drink alcohol. Those are far more important to the Rasta than than actually smoking marijuana. It's only here in the U.S. with a primarily uh, where the, the backlash comes from white people who all they know about Rastafarianism is smoking ganja and Bob Marley and what you've got from movies and pop culture uh, who can't disconnect the, uh, the religious aspects of Rastafarianism from the cultural trait of smoking ganja. I see. And then so tying it all together with the, the, the veganism and Rastafarians sort of not eating meat, they're vegetarians. Um, it just it was a natural fit. And Absolutely. Then, and then learning about Salasii mm -hmm. was something that just was, again, a natural sort of ideal that he is. The... Yeah, well, um, the Haile Selassie, the, the, um, the central figure of Rastafarianism, um, uh, when you refer to Rastafari or to Haile Selassie, you're referring to the same person. Rastafari was a man. And as a world leader of Ethiopia, during his life, he was, uh, the country was under attack from Italy, um, which would ultimately lead up to World War II. And Haile Selassie in Ethiopia is a prominent figurehead in the autonomy of not only African states in general, but Ethiopia specifically. He's, he's held in very high regard uh, as a, certainly not a, a founder of the country, but of the person who modernized the country for the betterment of all people. So he's, he's held in high regard in Ethiopian pop culture. 
in the Rastafarian culture, he's worshipped as uh, God on Earth. Okay. So I guess equivalent to like a Jesus Christ figure. Absolutely. Within the Christian faith. Uh, yeah, you can certainly draw some parallels there. Sure. Okay. And so to this day, though, that is the foundation of, of your, I guess, religion, your belief system. But uh, as we, we you know, we just had a tea ceremony prior to this conversation, you know, mm-hmm. that's based in the Asian Chinese philosophy of tea ceremonies. Is that yeah, correct? Correct. And, you know, Buddhism is a huge part of your life. Absolutely. Like I talked about, you fasting for Ramadan. Muslimism is something I think you also think is a beautiful religion mm-hmm. and culture. Of course. Hinduism. Go mm-hmm. down the list. What is it about religion in general that you think is is just so, I guess, fascinating and, and something that you hold so dear to you? Um, well, let me think about that. Um, I've always believed that experience is the best teacher, and when and I realize that's a popular uh, expression people use. It's it's cliche, but experience being the best teacher doesn't only mean or doesn't have to mean your own experience. Obviously, having your own life experiences is important to development and, and guidance. But I also value the experiences of others quite a bit. And so historically, cultural traits, communities throughout the world revolve around spiritual practices. I don't know if religion is always the right word to use. But, um, but there's something spiritual at the core of most, most cultures. And so I appreciate that. And so in an effort to be teachable myself, um, I, I do what I can to incorporate to the best that I can things that I, traits that I find valuable from different systems. So I study Zen Buddhism uh, to some degree, and, and tea ceremony is a large part of that. The, the person I look to for guidance through Zen is a, a teacher named Wuda in Miaoli, Taiwan, and he teaches Zen with tea being the medium at which he does that. And Zen is a Buddhist practice. And so in a search for peace in my own life, uh, I have in more recent years discovered uh, tea practice, which um, again goes back to uh, a specific person in Taiwan. And you can't practice Zen or search for Zen uh, without without the Buddhist element because it's that's the core. What is Zen? Can you just define that for the audience? Um, I'm afraid if I I'm afraid if I could define Zen I would show how ignorant I am of Zen. So what I'll say instead is is that the the benefit to a Zen practice or a Zen study is clarity and mindfulness in our thoughts and our actions while we're in these bodies in this life. Mm-hmm. And so while I don't think I'm qualified to define Zen, uh, I think that I could say that confidently that the closer someone can get to Zen, the better the overall quality of life and their, their contributions to this life uh, are, are, the bigger their contributions are. Through mindfulness. Yeah, watching you conduct the ceremony um, reminded me of just readings that I've done on just being present. You know, it seems Mm -hmm. like every action you took through that whole ceremony, you were very present. Your movements were very calculated in a very present sort of manner. Would you say that's the essence of what you're trying to get closest to is is presence? Absolutely. In that moment? Sure. 
for yeah our our teacher uh our teacher's teacher says that um how you do anything is how you do everything and if if i were to drive my car as safely and mindfully as i uh, would serve tea for example then i would greatly cut back on the likelihood of having a car accident for example uh, that i could have avoided just by mindfulness mm-hmm. um, you know maybe that's an odd example but it's at least a, a fair example um, if we if we make the time and the space in our life for a zen practice like uh, serving tea like flower arrangement uh, like chinese martial arts like tai chi uh, being the best example of that perhaps if we make the time and the space for that, then the benefits of that um, uh, are are far more reaching than just that particular practice. Mm-hmm. They influence every part of your life. Have you carried that philosophy into your business at New Flower Studio, which is a, a professional piercing parlor? I mean, you're a professional piercer. Uh, by trade, I'm a body piercer, yes. And have you taken that kind of philosophy into like your piercing and, and working with individuals? Absolutely. Do you, Absolutely. Do you find that you have a more of a connection with your clientele as as you're doing these practices? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the impact that a Zen practice has had on me professionally is that if I'm better grounded to the universe and to what I'm doing through mindfulness, that I'm I'm able to give my clients. Hopefully, uh, of course, um, a better experience. If it's, if I'm having a better experience, if I'm more mindful, then I have to expect that my clients will have a better experience as well. Uh, when talking to piercers about, about their piercing practice, um, something that I regularly say is that if it's harder for you to do, then it's harder for your clients to have done. And so, mindfulness by itself, which is really the heart of Zen, um, impacts uh, everything we do. How does um, pain play into becoming more mindful? I'm just curious, and this is kind of maybe an odd question, but I mean, you're a very fully tattooed man. I know you participated in some very painful sort of practices within the piercing community, like a suspension. Um, does that play into any of this mindfulness that you talk about? And, and maybe as a, as a culture, a piercing culture, you think that the connection of piercing the body, the painful aspect of it, because being in your studio earlier, there's a way that you can do these like collages on people's backs with needles that isn't going to be permanent. It's more just like an art form of piercing. Uh, so pain is a direct route to connecting to your body. And I'm not going to say that that there's a real value in being able to deny pain or to muscle through the the pain and pretend like it doesn't exist or whatever, but living through any experience that's painful, especially if we're just talking about physical pain right now, um, I think that inherently connects you mind, body, and soul once the pain is gone. Nobody inherently wants to feel pain short of maybe mental health issues, uh, nobody wants to feel pain, but sometimes we're willing to go through pain to have something else that's rewarding. In my field, for example, it's body piercing. Our clients know that it's going to be painful, but they're willing to go through that to have the reward of uh, a 
great looking piece of jewelry that's well placed in the body and has an attractive look uh, for hopefully a long, long time. Pain is simply part of the payment for that. Mm -hmm. As piercers, our job is to minimize that. So we go through, uh, we go through the measures that we have available to us to minimize discomfort to our clients. Nonetheless, it, it does hurt. Of course it hurts. And sometimes, uh, modifications, piercing and, and other types of body modification, uh, come with a great deal of pain. And once that's over and you've successfully accomplished whatever, whatever the task was, whatever it was you were looking for, I think the reward is equal to or greater than the amount of pain, which is the real price. You know, not just, not just, there's not just a financial cost to what we do, but sitting through the pain and taking the pain and overcoming it, uh, is as, is maybe as valuable as the reward on the other side, whatever it was, like a piercing. Yeah. I think in listening to you describe that, pain also brings presence. Like, if you're in pain, it's hard to escape it. You're very present with that pain. Sure. Bringing you kind of closer to what we described earlier of that moment in which you're at full presence, full consciousness. And then the after effect can be something where you're like that contrast of being fully present with the pain and now the reward of having whatever you were trying to accomplish through the, the modification um, gives you that, that contrast moment that I think a lot of people search for in other ways. Like as a surfer, we have that moment on a wave where we're just completely present because the stimuli is still overwhelming. You're on the side of a rock face climbing half dome without ropes. Like you're fucking present, you know, like you just not, say fuck on your podcast <laughs> and say it's whatever you want. Okay. And, uh, you're not thinking about the past, the future you are in the moment because in the moment you're, you're surviving as you would under certain amount of pain thresholds. Like you are surviving through that moment, 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 moment until that pain is released. And then it's like, ah, now I see, you know, I think there could be drawn some parallels there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, it comes back to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very Zen to be, uh, in the moment when surfing a wave or rock climbing that you referenced, you know, the moment at which you are at your peak performance because you're so focused, you know, you are, you are finding your Zen. So as a piercer, the one who inflicts, you know, the pain, if you will, or just you, you do the act of piercing that person, do you find yourself in that moment just so present because obviously you're trying to minimize the pain for the individual? And uh, yeah. I guess my question is like, of all the things that you do, where do you feel the most presence? Like in your tea ceremonies, on, on, in the bands that you've played in, all the various activities that you've participated in over your 46 years, where do you feel the most present? Um, the most present, huh? So I've got a pretty strong meditation practice. My biggest meditation practice is reciting the heart mantra every day, uh, in the mornings when I get up and I've committed to doing that every day for one year. It would help me bring me closer to understanding the, uh, the heart sutra and solidify my meditation practice. I still do tea ceremony uh, a couple few times a week. I certainly drink tea a little bit more casually almost every day of the uh, week. Um, and I do, I do pierce, which, uh, is, has some meditative, uh, properties of its own. So, so right now where I'm at in life, just having committed to a goal of 365 meditation sessions, 
focus around a single uh, point uh, has had a profound influence on the rest of what I do. Um, at, at the things that I do, I think I'm better at, more skillful at now than than normal. And it's because I, I start nearly every day. The first thing I do almost is just go right to my meditation. And sometimes it's rough. Sometimes I'm more tired. Sometimes I'm in more of a hurry to get up and get out of bed and go somewhere. And so sometimes even that's a struggle. You know, and my teacher says the, the less you want to do it, the more you need to. And um, as it turns out, if I can at least commit to doing that every day, by time it's done, no matter what kind of hurry I was in to get out of the house or what I'm stressing out about any given time, once I've finished with that meditation, uh, I'm never really fully prepared to get up and go about my day. And the, the lesson in that is, is setting a goal, committing to it, making it happen. And the reward for that is that it's made me, I think, just more skillful and mindful at life. You know, 2019 is, you know, at the halfway point here is a very strong year for me in a lot of ways, you know. And um, I credit uh, a lot of that to a, uh, a committed meditation practice. I think commitment and the word committed defines you perfectly. Because <laughs> you're committed in so many things or committed to so many ideas, practices. And, like, it's not lip service when you say you're committed to something like sure. John Johnson since I've met you has been committed to veganism to being straight edge to being Rastafarian and like when you commit to something it's like no like your word is bond, like bond like that's what I'm doing there is no it's not 300 you know 30 days a year it's 365 <laughs> days sure, sure, of wake sure. and like that's one thing I think I always can rely on you for is that commitment to what you say you're actually going to do and then tying back into like your lifestyle and the way you've designed it. Like when I first met you, like <clears throat> we worked at a smoothie bar, <laughs> you're like 26 or 28 years old. I was like 16 and you lived in Laguna and you took the bus to work. And some nights we would work closing shift and you were opening shift and you, you'd miss your bus and you couldn't get home. So you'd sleep at the bus stop to wake up the next morning to start your shift. And for me as a 16 year old kid who grew up in Newport beach, which is super affluent and meeting this guy who's like, and it was never something that you whimpered about, complained about. It's like, see you tomorrow, dude. <laughs> like, I'm going to bed. I was like, where are you going to bed? You're like, oh, there's a bus stop right over there. I sleep at most nights. That just like tripped me out, dude. And then some nights when we would close and you'd, you'd miss your bus, you would walk home. You'd walk from Newport Beach to Laguna Beach and it would take you all night long. You wouldn't hitchhike, you would just walk. And again, it's like, see you tomorrow, shape. I'm going to walk home. That's like, what? And you were, you would sometimes let me take you home. A lot of times you're like, no, I'm good. I'm going to walk. And again, it just like floored me that somebody was so willing to, again, commit themselves to this lifestyle of like, no, dude, like I take the bus, like I sleep at bus stops and there was never, ever a complaint like, oh, poor me. I'm poor. I can't afford this. It's again, that just like wholehearted conscious commitment to this is life right now not always because i mean look at you now like you're a very successful business owner operator like it's incredible dude like so i think i'd like to tie in now in this conversation like that transition where you went from you know no, no offense but like poor john <laughs> like, <laughs> like not as as well off as you are now sure to like somebody who's got a successful piercing shop here in long beach 
that admittedly really isn't that wasn't that good with money and now has like taken the free classes that are offered by what is the city of Long Beach or a uh, small business development center they're everywhere throughout okay. the US at least okay and committed himself to like no I'm going to do this right because you have a lot of friends who have done the piercing tattoo parlors and it's just you know the books are a shit show and like look at you now dude like you have a, a very decent life you know not that it was sure. not decent before yeah, but no, it's, just, it's an amazing evolution that again I just I think about you in every moment I'm like this fucking sucks I'm like what would John Johnson do he'd fucking okay. walk home you know <laughs> he'd sleep right here you know? for the record I did try and hitchhike a few times and it never really worked out so well yeah I remember so, those uh, conversations with so, uh, uh, so suspect, yeah, suspect of, people asking uh, yeah. for certain favors along the yeah, way yeah careful careful of hitchhiking <laughs> um so my question is like, yeah. you know, with the evolution of going from there to here now, like how has that transpired and what do you think the biggest transition has been for you? Um, well, okay. So in, in the broad sense, my apparent success, <laughs> um, is really a, consequence of getting in where I fit in before, you know, before finding the piercing community, um, which has career and, and job opportunities that simply being vegan or being into the punk rock community or straight ed scene, uh, doesn't inherently come with, with job training. Um, but before discovering the world of body piercing, I didn't have a place where I could have made a home for myself and a network of opportunities uh, that I that I would go on to have. The actual pivotal moment was uh, for one year in 1998, I needed to move back to the state of Indiana uh, from Florida, oh, excuse me, from California. I've been living in California at that time for a few years. And went back to Indiana for the opportunity to be in and tour uh, with the band for a year. And what was the name of that band? It was a band called Burn It Down. And I moved into a house in Indianapolis that was only a couple blocks from what at that time was a very well-known body piercing studio. Now we're talking 1998, so you're talking 21 years ago. Uh, but I got a job working the counter at a at a piercing studio, and. Um, even though I had been living in California, I had already been a customer of that studio a couple times. So it wasn't like it was foreign to me. I wasn't like a complete stranger. I just happened to, to be a customer from California that moved to a house a couple blocks from that studio. And they were hiring for a counter person. And I went in, told him I wanted to apply for the job. The man, Kent Vizikas, who owned the studio had uh, said that he's taken resumes, so bring him a resume. And between my house and that studio was a, and I'll, I'll be dating it here, but an old VHS video movie rental store. And, you know, I'd lived in, in town for maybe only a few days, but I'd already known that that video store had uh, a box of, like, CD software stuff, you know, a little bit more primitive compared to the way the world works today, but they had like, at the point of sale system, a thing of a box of computer software. And one of them was a resume program, and I happened to know that that was there. And so when I wanted the job at this piercing studio, and the man says, bring me a resume, 
I skated one block from the piercing studio, spent a couple bucks on a resume making CD, went home, put it on the computer, another block away, skated back 20 minutes later with a printout of a resume that I just made up. And without looking at it, the uh, man hired me and told me that hundreds of people had asked for the job and that he told everyone I need a resume. And I was the only person in weeks that had physically brought in a resume like he had said. And so he hired me. And uh, so the life lesson there uh, was there's a way things work and a way things don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you do things the way they work, uh, the likelihood of success is uh, much greater. So I'm the only guy that turned in the resume. I'm the only person that got the job. And uh, it wasn't long after that, you know, I I felt at home. It was the first time I didn't feel like I just had another dead-end job. Like I, you know, it wasn't like a high-paying job by any means, but it felt like more than simply just another job making smoothies was and no more <laughs> no more making smoothies you know and smoothies are great i love smoothies and and god bless you know the people that make smoothies and and all that i love that but that wasn't something that i could like have like the life i wanted yeah of, you know short of opening a smoothie store and and being the owner of a smoothie place i mean that's that's probably pretty great i suppose um but uh but i learned pretty quickly in the year 1998 that uh, I was built for the piercing industry. That was really my, my calling. And so um, I needed the opportunity to find that. And um, I had the, uh, the wits about me to turn in a resume when I was told that's what it takes. And the rest is downhill from there, I guess. You know, just everything else was, not that it was all easy, mm-hmm. but I found a place where I fit in. I found a place where my worldview and my lifestyle, you know, was compatible with a career. Mm-hmm. And I never looked back. I've been doing it ever since. No, it's really cool because, you know, for a lot of misfits and rejects to come on the show, they had to leave the United States, you know, and go someplace where they felt like they fit in. Sure. You know, within, you know, the, the community that you found, you didn't have to go, like, around the world. You know, I know that you found certain groups now that you, you go participate in, like, the tea ceremonies in Taiwan, which I think you feel very kin with. Yeah. Um, but it's cool, right? I mean, like, and through that, like, you also found a business sense and a way in which you can turn the skill set that you learned through the, the piercing shop that you kind of apprenticed in to now owning your own, what, New Flower Studio for, mm-hmm. what, like, the last, like, five years, ten years? Uh, seven years. Seven years. And, yeah, it's a, are you, and you're talking about maybe, like, branching out and starting more studios? Uh, we are in the infant stage now of planning a, another brick-and-mortar studio. We've expanded into the back of a tattoo studio in the city of Torrance uh, called Black Raven Tattoo, and that's where I personally uh, pierce on the weekends. Um, it's, it's far from a whole other location, but it serves as another outlet of our, our company's products and services. What makes your service unique within the piercing world? Unique is uh, one of my favorite words. In, in the world of business, I think being unique is one of the biggest assets you could have. And while there are lots of options for buying body jewelry, there are lots of options for getting the service of body piercing, our particular studio and staff um, all share a common vision of what it takes to make sure that the quality of our products and the quality of our services are equal 
to the quality of experience that we strive to give our clients. You know, there's all kinds of things that are a little bit more mechanical or engineered. Um, our studio, for example, has a parking lot, which is rare in the city of Long Beach, <laughs> right? Um, and so if, if I had to, I could sell the virtues of come to our studio because we have free parking, right? That's not something that, that our competitors can, can say largely. But in terms of like products, the number of studios that sell high quality brand name jewelry designers like we do are far outnumbered by the places, usually you're thinking tattoo studios, that sell lower brand, more novelty jewelry items at a much, much, much lower price point. Now, we're blessed in Long Beach to have competitors that sell high-end jewelry like we do. And that's a blessing, not a curse. It's, it's, they're, they're our competition, but it's a blessing to have competition that offers products and to some degree services like us because it sets a standard that our customers uh, come to expect. Um, and that's good for all of us, right? And it's not just about us and our studio. Um, there, there are other great options out there. But when people leave our studio, I believe that the overall experience is simply very, very unique. It's been a few years now, but for example, um, I overheard a conversation in our front showroom between a piercer and a client where the client was complimenting our studio, saying that she enjoyed coming to our facility because uh, uh, at the other studios, they don't even pretend to be your friend. And they just, that person, uh, you know, she saw us as being like her friends in body piercing. And I think that is a large thing that separates us. It's not hard to buy good products. Um, it's not even hard to be skillful at body piercing. But it's easy to not give someone an overall experience. And everything from the moment people come into our studio and leave by design, by the, the way we, simply the way we work as a group, is by design uh, a unique experience. So then, where within the industry have you positioned yourself, and how have you separated yourself from the rest? Um, you know what? There are lots and lots of great studios, lots and lots of great piercers. There are very high-end body jewelry designers selling, offering great products. And our studio has really positions itself as the go-to place for gold body jewelry. Um, it's not hard to have an upscale appearing studio, but your services and the quality of your services have to, pr to match the brand that you're trying to sell, right? It's all about packaging. And absolutely our products, our jewelry, uh, match the rest of the brand of our studio as an upscale place to get pierced. And we've really found a niche in gold body jewelry. Uh, it's not like we only sell gold. Uh, most people should be able to come and afford to to shop in our piercing studio. However, people who are uh, really attracted to the finer jewelry, and again, gold and uh, precious gems, are almost certainly going to love what we have to offer. And I feel I've got to throw in a caveat that as a company policy, as a matter of corporate ethics, we only sell 
uh, conflict-free gems. So nothing that we can't take on good faith by our vendors uh, goes through the studio if we would suspect it would be a conflict gem. Blood diamond, for example, is a, yeah. the common term people know. Okay. That's a, that's a really important part of our corporate values. Everyone that works in our studio shares that value, and that's something we're very uh, proud of, and our clients will reward us, I think, uh, heavily for that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's super cool. Can you describe to the audience uh, a little bit more about the, the free classes that you're taking on small business ownership? Sure. I think that's something that's accessible to a lot of people, especially here in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, that they don't take advantage of. And it sounds like you've learned a tremendous amount from and applied it. And hence the reason you're successful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? I, uh, for a while, I was uh, referred to as the poster boy at the, the Long Beach uh, chapter of the Small Business Development Center. Um, okay, so in the United States... There's a agency in the U.S. federal government called the Small Business Administration. And the purpose of the Small Business Administration is to support small businesses in the U.S. because most people in the United States work for what class is classified as a small business. And so it's important that small businesses have the means of succeeding, which means competing not only amongst themselves, but against larger corporations. And one of those, one of the resources available to us is the Small Business Development Center, which gets its funding from the SBA on the federal level. And the SBDC, it's called, has offices around the United States. SBA, I believe, also funds an organization called SCORE. I can't remember what that acronym means. Uh, but uh, I personally have worked very closely in the city of Long Beach with the Small Business Development Center, which is the L.A. chapter. It's, it's, lo it's located here in, in the city of Long Beach. And they offer very low cost to free classes for people who want to learn anything and everything about successfully starting, managing, maintaining a small business. And in the earliest days, I mean, you know, within a couple years before even opening my own studio, I started, first I started reading books. I was literally at work one day, walked across the street to the library, and walked back to work with five books under my arm about opening a business. And I read every one of those books and took notes on everything I felt was important. And a common theme was... You need to get business counseling and take classes from either the SBDC or the SCORE, this other organization. And fortunately to, for me, there's a, a local small business development center here, and I immediately started taking classes. Uh, I was eventually assigned a uh, what they called a um, core counselor or core advisor. Uh, I was eventually assigned what's called a core advisor and he walked me through the, the steps of developing a business plan. And I would go on and spend about 18 months doing uh, market research and learning everything I would need to know about not only getting my business open, but uh, keeping it open. Lots and lots of businesses fail. Small businesses can fail very easily. And it's almost always going to be uh, just mismanagement or lack of of management, and I was the furthest thing from being 
formally trained in business. Uh, so I had to start from scratch and figure out not only how I was going to run my business and uh, how I was going to get it open and then run it, but how to manage it in a way that would allow it to flourish. And it took a, uh, it took a solid couple years for proof of concept, but at about the two year mark, uh, I was able to really see that the business was growing, uh, notably. It was obvious. And within, uh, that couple years, I was able to start bringing on some part-time help. And now at about seven and a half years uh, or so, uh, we have a full staff of reception and piercers, which has freed up my time greatly to uh, pierce at another uh, location that I don't own, uh, like I said uh, a little bit ago, and um, has allowed the people to, uh, the people that, and that has allowed the people that work with me at the studio to uh, really grow as piercers and develop uh, their careers and their reputations and uh, do well for themselves. It's so cool, dude. I mean, you're such an inspiration to me in the way that you've done this. Like, I could just, because we know each other and we get to have these conversations, like, and I get, have gotten to work with you when I was younger, like, I can just see the progress that you've made and, and gotten yourself to where you're at. And it's like, every step of the way is trackable. You know, it's like, you, you listen to some podcasts and, like, successful people either forget certain aspects of how they got there or it's complete bullshit. And, like, they're they're not telling the whole truth. But, like... Through the conversations that we've had through what I know about you, it's like, it's that literally like success story where you just took one foot in front of the other and slowly built this, not empire yet, you still have only one location, but sure, sure. you're about to like open another one pretty soon. It's just such a cool story, man. Inspirational, I think, to anybody listening, like it can be done, you well, know, and you sure. use a lot of free resources around you to get to where you're at. Sure. Well, you know what though, man, like number one, um, I opened a business in an industry that I had already been in for, for over a decade. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't, I wasn't unfamiliar with the ins and outs of the industry itself. And as a practitioner, as an actual piercing like technician, I was opening a business in an area that I had already been working in for a decade. So again, it wasn't like starting from scratch. I had a clientele. They were just going to get pierced at a different physical location, but it's still in the same like part of Los Angeles. Right. And so I had that, that working, uh, for me, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm very much not immune to, uh, making mistakes and equally as important. Uh, I am, uh, uh, to the best that I can be, uh, able to learn from those mistakes. And like I said, you know, in the beginning, um, that uh, experience is the best teacher, even when it's someone else's experience. And so I've known an awful lot of people in piercing with different degrees of success, you know. Uh, and I know some people that that manage their businesses and their careers almost like they're allergic to success. And uh, and if I can if I can learn from that and make uh, it, it just if I can learn from that. I can make smarter decisions that not only impact my personal well-being and future, but the people I depend on that work in the studio with me. You know, everybody has to benefit 
from, from what the decisions that I make, you know, and I like to think we make decisions as a group together. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a one for all, all for one kind of scenario. It's mm-hmm. either good for us all or it's bad for us all. Yeah. You know, and being able to recognize that in advance, uh, helps us, um, collectively make good decisions. Yeah. No, I think beautifully said, I think any small business owner can take those words of wisdom and apply it to whatever their endeavors may be. Um, you know, you talk about experience being, you know, your best teacher and something you always look to. Um, however, I know you do have teachers in your life and transitioning into another topic, you know, that we kind of referenced earlier on with your new, your new found passion for tea mm-hmm. and Zen Buddhism. And like you have traveled to Taiwan to practice these tea ceremonies with your tea Zen teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I'm not saying this correctly, but yeah, no, no, you're um, fine. He <clears throat> he is a Zen teacher. I'm not an initiated student of his exactly, but I am one of the many people around the world that look to him for inspiration and uh, guidance. Absolutely. And then right now, there's there's like a big transition where um, there the tea community that you're involved with is is building a new location or looking to build a new location in Taiwan to continue this practice. Yeah. So again, his uh, his name is Wuda. And his contributions to the tea community are divided between like a few different sort of um, channels. So at the home that he and some of his uh, long-term resident students live in, they fund themselves through a magazine called Global Tea Hut. Anybody could look it up, globalteahut.org. And, you know, for a, a 20 or so dollar a month, uh, subscription, you get a, a magazine that teaches, uh, Zen and Tao and all things tea, including like the linear, like more physical properties of, of tea and manufacturing. Um, and that's how they support themselves is through a magazine called Global Tea Hut. The home that they have where anyone who wants to study tea and Zen can go stay at for courses is called Tea Sage Hut. That would be tsagehut.org as well. But they've always had a ongoing fundraiser called Light Meets Life, which is their efforts to put money aside for a larger home to house their uh, their collective tea practice. Um, Wuda is a very popular author. Uh, his Western name is Aaron Fisher, and you can find his books at Barnes and Noble and places that that sell books to us in the West, but um, they have long outgrown the home that they currently have in Taiwan. And they happen to now be in a position to need to find more urgently a larger, bigger place. And so globally, the tea community is pulling its resources to try and raise money to support their uh, efforts. I would think that anyone listening that might have an interest in pursuing any of this, even if it's just to casually look it up on the internet, would be to spend a few minutes uh, looking through the websites, T-Sage Hut and, and Global Tea Hut. Those are .orgs. Okay. And yeah, they, <clears throat> they'd be finding information about not only the tea culture, but Zen Buddhism as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if you're a YouTube uh, fan, then um, you can certainly look up uh, T-Sage Hut on uh, YouTube. Mm-hmm. And, or excuse me, Global Tea Hut on YouTube, and uh, you would find lots of uh, really inspirational and well done videos that really outline what a, a tea practice uh, looks like. Yeah, it was really 
a great experience to have with you prior to this conversation back at your house. And when I was in Taiwan, you recommended a tea house that you really liked that I got to visit, which was extremely cool. I mean, I love tea. I drink a lot of it. The way you described it to me prior to this conversation, the ceremony that we had, really changed my mind about tea. Um, and as somebody who loves tea, I think I will dive deeper into learning more about the, the practice of these tea ceremonies and just the drinking of tea as well. I mean, like you, I learned that you can age tea like up to 70 years and it becomes almost like a commodity. A lot of people buy tea young, age it, and then I'm assuming try to sell it or have it as sure. a retirement sort of yeah. thing in their garage or however they age it, <laughs> which was really interesting because you hear that with wine and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. not so much tea. So um, when's your next trip back to Taiwan? <clears throat> um, you know what? That's a great question. I, I don't have anything scheduled. I'd like to think I'll make it back there by the end of the year. If, uh, if Wuda and the T family in Taiwan secure a new home to live in, uh, it'll definitely need some renovations and they've got to, they've got to get some movers and stuff. So I've, I've been told I'm at the top of the list to come out and, and help, uh, help with the big move. And so if they can secure a place uh, by the end of the year, which is their goal, then uh, you can find me in uh, Taiwan looking for my Zen. Sweet, dude. If you could talk to one audience member out there who might be interested in learning more about tea, practicing tea, practicing uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, piercing, getting into that industry, uh, starting a small business, you know, what would you say to them? Just to take that first step if they're mm -hmm. afraid or they don't know where to, what to really do. Okay. Um, wow, there's so many steps. I don't know how to narrow it down to just one without uh, discrediting the others because they're all so valuable. Um, I guess I would say I'm gonna I'm gonna say more than one thing and I'm gonna veil it. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hide some I'm gonna hide some things in and pretend like I'm only saying one thing. Because uh, you asked me because your question was if I could just say one thing, right? Um, but before I say that one thing, I'll start with. The lessons on how to do something well are going to be hidden in the practice itself. Rikyu, the, the Japanese Zen teacher who largely gave us tea ceremony in the style that we, in the idea that we have now for sitting with tea. Rikyu taught that tea would teach us, uh, seven things. And the first one T would teach us is how to make a good cup of tea, right? You can only make bad tea so many times before it starts getting better, right? And that's because if we, if we can see tea as the teacher itself, it will teach you by default, right? So if you wanted to know how to have a better Zen practice or how to have a Zen practice, you start searching for your Zen and you can only not find it so many times before you realize you're getting closer. And the same thing would apply in business. If you want to be successful at your business, you have to keep practicing it before you can get good at it, right? Before getting good at anything, you have to make a whole bunch of mistakes. That's how you learn that you're getting better. So if I had to say just one thing, to any one person that could benefit from anything I have to say, it would be start by surrounding yourself 
with people who've already done what you want to do and uh, let their experience be one of your teachers. You know, you can surround yourself with, uh, with, um, people that aren't passionate about what they do or they're not serious about what they do. And the lesson that you'll learn from that is either to be as, uh, insincere and unpassionate about what you're doing like them, in which case you can expect to be where they're at. Or it's to recognize that you want more and that the path that they set is not going to take you to where you're trying to go. And so surrounding yourself simply with people that have already done what you want to do. And at the same time, uh, you got to be doing, you know, if I could say a second thing, uh, it would be uh, to do what you're passionate about. You know, I've uh, I've reached a certain degree of of uh, success uh, uh, in body piercing because I'm very passionate about body piercing. I love it. I love everything about piercing and jewelry and the the spiritual aspects of it, where they can be found, and the mechanical, almost clinical-like aspects uh, that are certainly there. I love all of it. There's nothing about body piercing that I don't that I don't love. Um, and while I may not be piercing full time anymore like I was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I don't love it any less. Uh, but at my time in life and career, it's time for other people to shine for sure. And, um, I'm blessed to have an incredible staff that, uh, that are in their time to shine. And, um, I get to enjoy watching, uh, watching that. You know, there's, there's nothing, you know, like, like how many things could be like better to watch than like other people's like success. You know what I mean? Like that's like incredible when I see anybody that's just inherently good at something, whether it's a sports figure or an actor or something like that. And they get to reap the benefits of like being good at what they do. Like, man, I love that. I love that so much. And to be able to give opportunities to other people that needed, you know, need opportunities and tools to shine and grow and succeed, like only helps me like, you know, be, you know, be proud in some way of being able to, to be a part of that because 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 plenty of people gave me opportunities you know what i mean i would never deny someone else something that other people offered me and uh and i uh, i do what i can when i can to to help other people grow and uh and uh, move forward you know and uh, we always want to be successful you know and so um so uh fortunately for me i'm still very passionate about piercing and i certainly wouldn't have opened up a piercing studio if i i wasn't it's 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 a huge responsibility Especially in the earliest days when the financial burden was so heavy and uh, scary, you know, at times, you know, and, and overwhelming. Um, but I, uh, I had a path laid out for me and I made the um, smartest decisions I, uh, I could. And a lot of that is based off of watching other people who succeeded and or did not succeed. Learning what I could. Thank you, my friend. We love you. Thanks, brother. Good looking out, man. Awesome, John. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story with the audience. Folks, if you are interested in piercing, please check John out at New Flower Studio in Long Beach. You can click in the show notes to see where that is. If you are into tea and you find that when you look at Global Tea Hut, that really interests you, you should also check out the website Light Meets Life or Tea Sage Hut, also in the show notes, both tied into this tea culture in Taiwan, surrounded, uh, or it's all surrounding this um, Zen teacher, Wuda, that John is really interested in and inspired by. So check those things out as well. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you all. I think you all are so very, very beautiful. Misfits and Rejects is doing great. 
monthly, I think now we're getting about 16,000 listeners a month and we're growing every single day. So thank you for the love and support and just joining me every week for these really inspirational stories that are told by people like you and me. You know, people that the only thing that they might have done different is taking that first step or taking that first flight in the direction that they wanted to go. You know, we all had fear in the beginning as we started these processes of building businesses or going on that first big trip away from home and your loved ones, friends, family, that place that's comfortable. But the greatest changes come through moving forward in life into areas that you're uncomfortable in going into and you learn a lot about yourself and john johnson's a great example of somebody who's always diving into things he doesn't understand very well and persevering pushing through and coming out on the other side much better for it so thank you again for listening i think you all are so very beautiful and i look forward to seeing you in next week's episode take care ciao thank you for listening to misfits and rejects i hope this inspire you to think about your life situation where you're at and possibly make a big decision to Choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.